Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Dr. Gabriel Scali joins us to discuss today's easing of restrictions, the latest on AstraZeneca and what it all means for our vaccine rollout. Minister Stephen Donnelly says the government can't add the whole world to a mandatory hotel quarantine list, but will legal challenges to the current system open the floodgates? Joining us in studio is Fianna Foyle TD, Paul McAuliffe and People Before Profit TD, Richard Boyd Barrett. Recent polls reflect a frustrated public, but can the government get the voter back on side? The examiner's Daniel McConnell will be joining us to give his analysis. And later, Vicky Phelan updates us on her treatment in the United States and how being so far from home in a pandemic has made for a tough few months. Get in touch on Twitter or hashtag TonightVMTV. First, Virgin Media News correspondent Zara King joins us live from the Department of Health. Zara, Nayak, we're meeting today. It was a long meeting. I think it lasted almost all day. Looking at AstraZeneca, what is their latest advice? Good evening, Kira. Yes, so Nyack recommending that AstraZeneca is not used in people under the age of 60. Uh, that decision being made this evening, meaning that uh, that vaccine will have to be considered and what exactly will happen with that. Uh, discussions taking place with the HSE over the coming uh, days, Kira. Dr. Ronan Glynn saying tonight that we need to give the HSE a little bit of time to consider exactly what that is going to mean. In the meantime, the HSE has written to all hospital groups and to community healthcare organisations to cancel all AstraZeneca clinics for tomorrow. So it means that anyone who is due to have an appointment tomorrow to get the AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, that you would uh, not be going to that appointment tomorrow and that you'll be contacted uh, with further details on that over the coming days. Uh, just a statement as well this evening, I should say, Kira, from AstraZeneca itself, just saying that we recognise the decision taken by the National Immunisation Advisory Committee. Uh, they say AstraZeneca has worked closely and quickly with regulators to implement changes to the product information and to understand the epidemiology, possible mechanisms that could explain these extremely rare events. And they want to say they will continue to collaborate uh, with the NIAC on that. Uh, let's just take a listen to what Ronan Glynn had to say this evening in relation to what this might mean for the future rollout. Look, I think we have, in fairness, we have to give the HSE a day or two to, to, to fully uh, weigh up what this means for the programme. But we are aware that we have very significant quantities of other vaccine uh, coming into this country over the coming weeks. Equally, there's a significant cohort of people aged 60 and older who haven't yet been vaccinated. Uh, um, so so uh, I would be hopeful, although I can't say with absolute certainty at this point, uh, that this will have, uh, will hopefully not have a significant impact on, on the rollout of, of the programme and hopefully will not impact on our ability to uh, recommend further easing at point in time. 
Well, Kira, the key question, I suppose, for people at home watching the programme this evening who've already received their first dose of AstraZeneca is what happens next for me? And that's an understandable question. The NIAC advice is showing that people over 60 should get their second dose as planned after 12 weeks. They say people under 60 who are at high risk or very high risk in terms of an underlying medical condition, they will also get their second dose after 12 weeks. And it is the people under 60 with no medical conditions, which will allow a 16-week interval, Kira, so that they can allow further assessment of the benefits and risks. And we heard Dr Ronan Glynn speaking there. We understand he's coming in front of the Health Committee um, tomorrow. He's warning about the risk of a fourth wave. What exactly do they have to say this evening? Yes, Kira, well, I think Dr Ronan Glynn has been very clear in recent weeks that, you know, we still need to hold firm and he's particularly pointing to the upcoming six weeks and saying that uh, while the vaccines are vitally important as we move through this pandemic, they're not going to make uh, the most significant difference in terms of getting us out of these level five restrictions over the next six weeks. In fact, it is down to each and every one of us in terms of our individual behaviour, uh, sticking to those guidelines and things that people will be sick of hearing about, things like social distance, reducing your contacts, all of those basics that we've heard many, many times over the past year. Uh, he will speak to that Oireachtas Health Committee in the morning and he's going to talk about things like a considerable risk that Ireland will experience a further wave of infection if public health restrictions are eased too quickly. He says a further wave of infection can be substantial mitigated if the levels of social contact across the population remain largely unchanged over the next six weeks. And Zara, they also uh, shared the latest virus figures this evening. What's it telling us? Yes, Kira. so those latest COVID-19 case numbers uh, coming through this evening, uh, we are reporting 394 uh, new confirmed cases and no further deaths. And interestingly, uh, that five-day moving average, Kira, continuing to come down now, standing at 404. All right, we leave it there. But Zara King from the Department of Health, thanks for updating us this evening. Well, joining us now on the line, we have Dr. Gabriel Skelly, President of Epidemiology and Public Health at the Royal Society of Medicine. Thank you for your time, Doctor. I'm sure you heard there that NIAC, our National Immunisation Advisory Council, have sent out a recommendation this evening that AstraZeneca is not given to the under-60s. In the UK, a different position. In Belgium and France, a different position again. It's hard to know which country and which um, medicines authority has the right approach, isn't it? It is, but I, it may well depend upon the availability of vaccines. I think uh, there is this possible side effect and it is quite a serious one and it is right to be cautious. But you've got to weigh up the danger of the, of the side effect uh, of these clots with the danger of not having a vaccine available and getting COVID-19. And the UK uh, calculation was done very carefully. They, they weighed it up for all of the age groups. And it was really in the under 30s where the risk of uh, a serious problem from the, the vaccine was, was uh, higher than a risk of serious problem from COVID-19. The other age groups, and particularly as you got older, uh, the danger of dying from or having a serious illness as a result of COVID-19 and ending up in intensive care uh, was far, far higher than the risk from the vaccine. So it is age related. And But the UK, the UK sums make sense to me and they're lucky enough to have uh, enough vaccine that they can uh, give a different vaccine to the under 30s. And I, I think that was the wise decision. I don't quite know whether there is enough vaccine 
uh, to do uh, do that sort of switch around in Ireland for under 60s, for the whole of the under 60 cohort. That may pose problems. Um, for that over 60 cohort who are now going to get the AstraZeneca, there may be a certain level of scepticism or perhaps fear or concern about this particular vaccine. How would you go about addressing that? Oh, well, I think uh, one of the useful things that was published in England at their press conference was a, a risk assessment, and which showed very clearly by age what risk you had of having one of these serious side effects. And the risk drops dramatically with age. So for people over 60s, they said it was uh, a 20 per million chance, if I'm right, or actually two per million chance of having one of these uh, episodes. And um, and the chance of dying from an episode, if I remember correctly, was about one in four. So a very small risk, particularly for older people with the uh, with the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, let's talk about what's happening in uh, Britain today. In England, we saw queues of people, you know, going for a pint, people going for a haircut, people, you know, going to shop in their local uh, retailers. Uh, did you get to enjoy any of these things today? And I'm ah. <laughs> wondering, how do you feel uh, at this point about the reopening in, in uh, England? Well, uh, to answer your question, I had a, a swim in an outdoor swimming pool today, which was great. It was... Uh, the, the having a pint business or eating is only to be done outdoors. And it was freezing today. And, you know, I, I do like my Guinness cool, but not quite that cool. Uh, so I'll not be having an outdoor pint this evening. And uh, how do I feel about it? I think it's a, a difficult decision. I think the vaccination and the results of the vaccination are phenomenal. The case, cases have fallen away dramatically. Hospitalizations. Uh, deaths fallen all dramatically. In fact, with hospitalizations, they're actually hospitalizations are higher now amongst the under 50s than the over 50s for, for the first time, which is an amazing turnaround. So there is a lot, a lot of optimism. There is no sign yet of the variants grabbing a hold in the UK, though there are some of them uh, around and there are one or two clusters that have developed. But that's the big worry. That we'll will get that these variants, which we know are present and are in being imported by travellers, uh, will take a hold, and they will dodge the vaccines to a greater or a lesser extent. Um, in Ireland, we've just heard from uh, Neffet this evening that they're going to be warning uh, our health committee tomorrow uh, in our Arractus of the risk of a fourth wave if we reopen things too quickly, and yet the other. You know, side of things we're being told there's very, very positive metrics out there in terms of hospitalizations, numbers, the OR number, uh, ICU admissions. It's it's quite conflicting message, isn't it, for the public at the moment? I, yeah, I can understand it. It's difficult to understand. Let me uh, let me just try and explain a little bit as I see it. Uh, vaccination, and particularly in Ireland, where the limited numbers of people have had the vaccine, uh, that will deal with the people at high risk. But there are lots and lots of people out there who aren't at very, very high risk, but are at moderate risk or even low risk, might have heart disease or chest problems or diabetes and uh, not able to get a vaccine yet, but uh, very susceptible to the virus. And if the virus takes off, if there's too much relaxation and we get the sort of huge spread which we saw as a result of the, the, the Christmas madness of relaxation, uh, if that happens again, well, a lot of those people who are at moderate uh, 
risk and low risk will get infected and some of them will end up in hospital and some of them will die. So that's the big fear. I think plus the other fear that we don't talk as much about as we should, which is long COVID. It's so, so important. And uh, in the UK, it's been estimated now that there are a million people suffering from long COVID, a million people. So if we left death aside, which you can't, death is the most important thing, but we are laying uh, in store a lot of disability. So keeping the numbers under control, getting it, getting the numbers down, keeping them down and keeping the variants out, that, that has to be the way forward. In Ireland today, we did reopen some you know, elements of our economy. More construction workers went back to work. We can now travel within our counties. All of our schools have fully reopened. What can we be doing here to try and mitigate some of the risks that that reopening will present other than vaccinating people? Oh, I think there's lots and lots, and there is a real danger that we just go for the sort of medical interventions, the vaccines or, or, or drug treatments when there are some, or hospital treatment. No, we need to stick to the basics. One of the big things we know is that uh, the virus is airborne, so ventilation is extraordinarily important, and I don't think we've paid half as enough not even half enough uh, attention to ensuring proper ventilation in schools and more space for people to be spread out in schools, in universities, uh, in, in, uh, in workplaces in particular. Uh, people have a right to fresh air and to be protected. And the best way of doing that is ventilation. And uh, there are plenty of other things that we could be doing making sure that social distancing is possible and able to be done in offices and, uh, and, and schools uh, and, and universities and all sorts of workplaces. You know, uh, there is plenty to be done and we mustn't forget about that basic public health infrastructure too. There needs to be, I know only too well in the Republic of Ireland for the work I did on cervical check and, and uh, on other reports on the public health structures there, that there isn't enough public health resource at a local level. The public health doctors need reinforcement uh, and they need support. And the local directors of public health uh, should be given a task in their local communities to make sure we do all of the preventive stuff. Prevention plus vaccination are really important. And there will be outbreaks, there will be flare-ups, and you need the local public health teams reinforced to be able to deal with those when they happen. All right, we're going to leave it there. But uh, I thank you for your time, Dr. Gabriel Scally. Pleasure. All right, let's go to our panelists this evening. Uh, Richard Boyd-Bard, I want to start uh, with you. Look, it'll be disappointing for anybody who was expecting to get that AstraZeneca vaccine tomorrow. We know those cancels have been clinic... Uh, those clinics, rather, have been mm. cancelled. But do you accept it was the right decision? Well, I, I mean, I certainly think we have to... Mm be safe and make sure that the vaccination programme is safe. So there are concerns about this clotting. But I think we need explanations to answer the questions that were raised by uh, Gabriel Scali there. Uh, if it is really the under 30s, uh, have we made the right decision in, in limiting it to people, everybody under uh, 60? And also, I just wonder, but, you know, there may be a reason for this, but I wonder why we have to cancel all the clinics rather than just the clinic, because a lot of the people mm. who are being vaccinated at the moment are over 60. Uh, and it would appear 
that's okay. So why do we have to cancel all the clinics tomorrow? I'm not entirely sure what the rationale behind that is. You can answer that, Paul, because all clinics tomorrow have been cancelled, whether you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s or 50s or 60s. And we know that the over 60s are going to be allowed to get uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine. So why did they make the decision to do that? Well, I think today was another reminder that there's nothing predictable or certain about this pandemic. And as the science changes, we need to evaluate the expert guidance that's been given to us by NIAC and by by others uh, and we need to react to it and I thought Roland Glynn was right today to say we need to give the HSE a number of days to, res- to respond to that. We do have limited vaccine supply even still but we're actually Ireland is in a good position only 20% of our quarter two vaccines are from AstraZeneca and that gives us more fle- more, more flexibility but I, I think it, it, it shows that this this vaccine this, uh, this pandemic continues to be a, a, a shifting game and we have to change and, and amend the, the measures that we take as we respond, as we respond to that science, but I, I just think one important point to say, though, is that the supply problem has a lot to do with the fact that different vaccine producers are uh, unwilling to share the technology uh, that they use to make the vaccines, and there has been a global campaign, particularly by poorer countries, many of whom aren't going to get almost any of their population vaccinated this year, uh, to say that all the patents should be lifted, all the intellectual property protections, which are essentially just protections for the pharma companies to make money out of the vaccine, that they should be lifted so the technology can be shared and that we can dramatically boost the production of the vaccines that we know are perfectly safe. Uh, But the European Union, including the Irish government, have opposed that campaign. They've refused to support it because they are dancing to the tune of the big vaccine companies. Okay, I'll just let you respond to that, Paul. Look, look, like lots of things in this pandemic, Richard has suggested that things are simpler than than they actually are, uh, and they're not. We know that that things are complicated, whether it's our commitment to COVAX and and to uh, vaccinating those people in in the rest of the world, or whether it's issues around hotel quarantining or zero COVID. Richard has been proved wrong on many of on many well, this, of these. The World Health Organization support the people's vaccine, so it's not Richard. It's the World Health Organization saying that they should lift the patents um, and intellectual like, property. Like, in terms of the targets, I suppose for people, um, we want to try and get 180,000 people vaccinated uh, this week, and we're still talking about this 82% of the adult population by the end of June. Is that now realistic, or should we expect the government to come out with a new plan and new targets, given what's happened with AstraZeneca this evening? Well, look. It, it is a big change today in the same way we've been here before where there were changes recommended for those over 70. A vaccine which four months ago we thought was going to be the game changer now is only applicable for people between 60 and 70. So you don't so, think we'll meet those targets? No, and that's not what I'm saying here. I'm saying that, that actually I think Ireland is in a, in a good position because only 20% of the quarter two supplies AstraZeneca. There are supplies from other ones. In Over the last number of, of months that hasn't proved to our advantage. Now that this advice is here, uh, I think there's other options and, and it's up to the HSE to respond, but I think we are in we are in a good place because of the diversity of vaccines. Yeah, you see, Gabriel Scali raised another very very important point: is that our public health infrastructure mm. is absolutely chronically understaffed and under-resourced. Now, in the countries where they're doing vaccination best, they have a strong public health teams at a local level so they can adapt very quickly to difficulties, problems, changes. We are completely incapable of shifting because we Did have... you accept pu- that, Paul? Well, actually, our public health measures have been really strong over the no, last the public couple of weeks. Teams, the, the public teams. health teams yeah, abs- have absolutely. one third of the staffing levels they're supposed the, to have. There has been, there has been a, a tradition of that, but I'm talking about the public health measures we take in the last number of weeks. Walk into 
test centres for asymptomatic people, mandatory hotel hotel quarantine, antigen tests or rap, rapid testing uh, being ro rolled out. These are all very strong public health measures that even with the vaccine will be, will be needed. Um, in terms of the AstraZeneca and some of the concerns that perhaps the over 60s will be feeling this evening um, because of you know this issue around blood clots, but also because of the um, delay, I suppose, in getting your second vaccine. It's 12 weeks until you get your second vaccine with AstraZeneca, so that's 14 weeks until you're fully vaccinated, whereas there's only three weeks with the visor. I mean, do you think people have a right now to, to ask for a specific vaccine? Yeah, I th see, this is where the people's vaccine issue is important because if what we should be doing is sharing okay, the best technology in order to boost the supplies of the ones that we okay, know are Okay, but let's safe. just accept where we are now. Well, it's very difficult, but I think if we could give people a choice, if they had concerns about particular vaccines when concerns are raised, that would be far preferable. But the problem is, because of the stranglehold of certain companies on the vaccine technology, we can't boost up the supplies to compensate for vaccines where particular problems emerge. Um, I just want to talk about um, what Neffet were saying this evening, what Dr. Rowan Glynn is going to be saying at that health committee tomorrow. He's saying there is a considerable risk of a fourth wave if we ease um, some of these restrictions too quickly. I think he's going to say tomorrow that they need to remain largely on changed for another six weeks. Is the government going to listen to that? Are they going to leave things as they are until six weeks? That's about the 24th of May. I think we've said very clearly we're going to be very, very cautious in, in opening. Like, right from the beginning of this, this is about balancing those people who pretend that zero COVID is the answer versus those people who want to let everything open. And I think taking that middle road sometimes gets criticism from both sides. You might be discussing that uh, that in, your, in the second half of your programme. But it is the, is the right and safe thing to but do. But I think there's an expectation out there among the public that comes sort of the 4th or 5th of May that we're going to see the next phase of reopening. But we see that Neff are going to say tomorrow, six weeks. So they want to go a lot longer than that. What's the government going to do? Is there conflict we've, there? We've said very clearly what our priorities are. They've been about around education and the health service. We're going to continue to look at the numbers and we're going to continue to put those people uh, those priorities first. Like, for example, we've had... What does that actually really mean? Because we have education, it, it, you know, fairly sorted it, now. It we have exactly, changes in the health service. Exactly I'm talking about things like, you know, um, going to the hairdressers, going to the yeah. barbers, perhaps moving outside the county. Those type of things that perhaps people are hoping to see come May. Well, look, we can only predict those things as we see the figures on that, as we see the impact of people returning to school. Thousands of children went back to school for the first time uh, si since Christmas. That's going to have an impact and we have to see what impact that will have. You know, we have to make sure that we do things and when we do them that we're safe and we're not giving people fal false hope. Or, Kira, on the other hand, we're not unnecessarily putting blanket restrictions. R Richard, for example, in January was saying that children like today shouldn't be returning to school until we had ze a zero community transmission. Like that, I don't agree with that. still your position that we should be looking for this zero COVID, that we continue with a long lockdown until we get to that point? Our position was that we should do the lockdown properly and then as a result it would be shorter, but that if you pursued the government strategy. But should children, so, have, gone uh, back, uh, should children uh, have gone back to school today, Richard? Of course we want our children back to school, but the point is... That, that's not what you said, that's not what you said in January because February. you have not done the thing properly, it's still unsafe. 
and because you haven't ventilated the schools, as Gabriel Scali uh, pointed out, you've done no work to reduce class sizes. So some classes are unsafe. I heard a uh, teacher from Galway who was saying, our school is fine because we have ventilated classrooms, we have big classrooms, but many schools are in desperately overcrowded situation uh, in prefabs and so on. And that is your responsibility. And the government have done nothing about that. And that oh, makes it more unsafe and more precarious. That's not correct. And we are, we are working with schools. And the prioritisation of older people rather than younger people for the vaccine programme demonstrates that actually your real risk in, uh, with, this, with this virus is age and not where you work okay, or, 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 or your exposure. Okay, I want to move on to mandatory hotel quarantine. You said um, last week, Paul, that you wanted to see Fianna Fáil fight back against uh, those within Fine Gael who are ideologically opposed to adding additional countries to mandatory hotel quarantine. We see 16 extra countries will be added this Thursday. So is that what Fine Fáil did? Did they stand up? Did they fight back against their government colleagues? Well, I suppose my job as a, as a government TD or as a TD that supports the government is to, to put forward our views. And, and that's what I did last week. You know, I don't give any government a, a, a blank check. And I did hear voices within government dismissing mandatory hotel quarantine. Finnegale voices, yeah, largely. They, they, predominantly, yes. And, and they were dismissing it on the basis of what I saw where, where it was an ideological view or not an evidence-based view. Actually, that isn't what happened. Government came to a very reasoned evidence-based view. They have, have uh, extended the list of hotel, uh, mandatory hotel quarantine. That was the right thing to do, but here, it's not without a cost. You know, there are lots of airport workers that are impacted by that in the same way as there are lots of hospitality workers impacted by our um, One of the concerns that Simon Coveney had was that Erasmus students uh, abroad would have to enter a mandatory hotel quarantine when they come back into Ireland. Um, you said at the time, well, there wasn't too many kids in your constituency who were on Erasmus. And we're hearing this evening that Simon Harris is looking at paying for those Erasmus students to go into what, mandatory what hotel actually, quarantine. What I was actually asked here was, why were Fine Gael TDDs advocating people be able to return? And I wasn't. And I said, well, look, I'm not getting phone calls from people who are on their holidays in the south of France who want, who want to come back. And I'm not. By, by and large, most people have been locked within their five kilometres. Not, not, retur not returning home. And I think the right decision was made by government and it was across government and it, so it was with different departments. these students, these Erasmus students who are coming back into the country from those five EU countries that are now on the mandatory hotel quarantine list that the government at a cost of one million, should pay for those students to go into that quarantine. Do you look, agree with that or I, I not? Think, I think you have to look at a cost. The difficulty with that is that there will be lots of uh, people seeking to, uh, to waive the costs. The, there is a cost for mandatory hotel quarantine. It was one of the risks of travelling abroad and was, was well known that uh, things would change. My worry would be that it would be extended extend to all one, but I'd be very happy to look at any particular person who, because of their income, isn't able to meet the, the mandatory hotel quarantine costs. Um, Richard, um this morning, we heard in Morning Ireland, uh, Simon or um, Stephen Donnelly saying that mandatory hotel quarantine couldn't be applied to the whole world. That it, there needed to be a proportional response to it, and there needed to be some sort of a you know a rational response to the numbers uh, internationally. Do you agree with that? The government have been making excuses for not imposing uh, mandatory quarantine for about what six or nine months now, and the consequence of that is that all of the effort and the hardship that ordinary people have endured on the, under the lockdown is then undermined through the back door uh, by cases being brought in. And they have delayed and delayed well, and we delayed. Have you have delayed under pressure from people like us. Uh, and it took well, a long we time. Have it took a long time for you to get there, OK? And that one of the reasons we are still at very high levels of infection 
uh, after a very long protracted lockdown is because the government didn't want to introduce the mandatory quarantine. Sorry, Jerry, and they didn't. You're, you're saying they the didn't, I didn't why interrupt Ireland you. I didn't I interrupt th- you, uh, Paul. And they didn't want to actually ensure that there was proper inspections of okay. workplaces, many of non-essential uh, workplaces, to continue to function. And because of that, because of that, I'll just finish. Because of that, you undermined the effectiveness of the lockdown and you made the lockdown longer. But Richard, you're saying that the reason why Ireland has high rates of COVID is because there was uh, continued travel in, tw- in 2021. It's one of even, the reasons. E- no, that but even though Neff would disagree with you that, even Philip Nolan disagrees with you on that, yeah. Richard, it's about Neff those easy answers. For All right. it's, it's about zero COVID, it's about people's Stop. vaccines. Okay. Stop, it's both about going to have to leave it there. <laughs> if you both talk over it's each a, other, nobody's going to hear you at home. And we're going to have to leave it there. We need to have a reasonable response. We need to implement measures when they're needed and it needs to be evidence-based. My thanks to Fianna TD Paul McAuliffe. We're going to leave that there. But after the break, has public opinion of the government gone past the point of no return? We'll be discussing. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're very welcome back. Well, after months of being the ones to break the bad news, will being in government as restrictions lift give Fianna Fáil the bounce back and public support that they're hoping for? And what happens if it never recovers? Well, political editor of the Irish Examiner, Daniel McConnell, joins the panel alongside People Before Profit TD, Richard Boyd Barrett. Uh, Daniel, very welcome to the programme and thanks for coming in to us this morning. How important is a successful vaccine rollout to the government in general, but in particular to Fianna Fáil? Well, it's particularly important to Micheál Martin because, you know, as of his speech, not the last State of the Nation address, but the previous one, he essentially linked his legacy to the successful rollout of the vaccine. He basically said, we will get this done. We will reopen the country. Uh, And, you know, this is a government that has not only opened the envelopes like unlike any other government in before, you've had record spending and you still find the main or the lead party in government at 11% in the polls. So, you know, the old way of doing things clearly isn't working. I, you know, if you open the purse strings and, and give money to everybody, you know, you'd get, you'd be delivered to electoral nirvana. That hasn't worked. And there, there has been a sense that, you know, if Fianna Fáil delivered a successful vaccine rollout, eventually, obviously, it's been mired in controversy since the get-go. But if they get it to the where the summer, we can enjoy some sort of a summer this year that they will see some electoral benefit. I'm yet to be convinced by that. I think, you know, the public are, I think, largely have made up their mind on Micheál Martin. I think they've largely said, you know, he was still in government for 14 years when a lot of the bad stuff happened in, in, a, in a bygone era. They're not convinced about his style of leadership. He's led a government that has been mired in controversy, resignations, go- golf gate, 
you know, calamity after calamity, bitching, infighting with Fine Gael. You've Leo Varadkar doing his thing, you know, undermining government from within. You've the Green Party at odds all over the place. So this is not a very stable looking government on one level. Uh, and yet, you know, they're spending record sums of money and we're seeing precious little results for it. And yet you have Fine Gael who are also in government, who are also part of this calamity mm. and who are also, you know, opening the checkbook and, and spending, 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 as you say. They do seem to be benefiting, don't they? Is it because they were there at the start of this pandemic? Is that the reason? And, and they were seen to, you know, handle it quite well? Partly. I think it's also partly that Fine Gael are the only sort of party that are leaning to the right of the centre ground. Everyone else is sort of fighting for that left to centre ground and maybe the slightly more left to centre than, you know, Richard and others. Um, but, you know, Fine Gael are the only ones on that sort of centre to centre right ground and it's uncontested. And there is a cohort of the population between 25-30% who want lower taxes, who want the state to shut up and go out and get out of our faces and leave us alone and are likely to go for Fine Gael. They did enjoy, like they had a disastrous election last year. They were like hopeless, like Fine Gael, you know, lost seats when they should have really been gaining seats last time around, but they lost them. Uh, but yet the first period of the pandemic, there was this rush and I think this kind of belief in government, mm -hmm. Simon Harris and Leo Varadkar in particular, I think seemed to kind of capture the public mood and seemed to, to a lot of people seem to have done a decent job. Their poll numbers are holding up. Sinn Féin's numbers are holding up. You have these two kind of groups emerging and Fianna Fáil are getting squeezed in the middle. But Boris Johnson, speaking of sort of a calamitous handling of, yeah. you know, government and, and um, dealing with um, COVID-19, he has enjoyed a phenomenal bounce in the polls since they got the vaccine rollout right. Yeah, two reasons for that. One, the vaccine rollout, and two, the weakness of the Labour Party in the UK. Keir Stammer, nice guy, good leader, not Jeremy Corbyn, but has essentially said, we will support you and on many of these things and haven't challenged the Boris Johnson government sufficiently enough to create a, a viable alternative. And when you do that, of course, you're a government. Even we have a stronger opposition here. Absolutely. More opposition. Absolutely. And I think what you're seeing here is a very robust opposition here, taking it to elements of the government. Uh, and, um, you know, Leo Records had his own difficulties in relation to, you know, the NAGP stuff. And I think that in some way has dented his cough a little bit. But certainly Fianna Fáil have not been in control of their own narrative since they've taken over from government. And I think today they would hope will be the start of reversing that trend. Richard, a robust opposition, but a fragmented opposition too. Isn't that fair to say? The left is not united. Um, no, it's not as, ni as united as it should be. Um, Never has been. <laughs> but, uh, well, I think it's improving. I think it's improving. And, uh, you know, People Before Profit is, is, is growing and we put on a new, an extra TD there recently with Paul Murphy. Uh, and we certainly intend to grow. But I think, I mean, one of the big problems that Fianna Fáil have, and I'm glad they have this problem, is that uh, these two parties, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, who I can't really see the difference between, uh, have seen a historic collapse overall in the dominance they had of Irish politics. To me, that's a good thing, right? For the first time, uh, they've gone from having about 80% of popular support for most of the history of this state to barely having 50% between them. Now, that creates a huge opportunity for a left government, for alternative uh, politics, and there just isn't enough room for Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, and I'm glad. In fact, to be honest, they should just admit that they're the same thing uh, and become a single party. No, they would say otherwise. Um, but do you not but accept they, that even if there had been a left government in place at the moment, that dealing with a pandemic that won't clearly go away, we're in the middle of a third lockdown, only starting to get out of it, uh, and we do have serious supply issues in terms of the vaccine coming in from the EU, that the left-leading government would have suffered too. 
Uh, not necessarily. I mean, first of all, we've pointed from the outset that some countries have done this a lot better, right? Countries like New Zealand, countries like Australia. And we argued for an alternative strategy. We think the government's strategy has been incoherent. Uh, it's been fragmented. It's been neither one thing nor the other. And of course, it led to that disastrous new wave that we saw in January, which is and the very, very long and protracted lockdown. I also, the all in it together narrative that we started out with and which people sort of embraced and endured hardship because of, I think, has broken down as actually people have seen that the people who've been hardest hit by the economic in, in, impacts of the lockdown aren't getting the support they need. The taxi drivers, the musicians, the Daniel, arts is that people. Fair? Is that fair to say when you look at some of the supports that have been put in place by this government and when you look at perhaps hospitalizations or deaths um, of people from COVID in this country in comparison to places like the UK and the US to say that it has been fragmented and disastrous? Uh, in certain places it has been. I think there have been inconsistencies both in terms of vaccine rollout, in terms of the the delivery of healthcare. I think de definitely, I think there have been issues around, um, you know, like in the early stages of the pandemic, remember there was issues around the treatment of meat, meat plants and all of that. You know, we, we locked down individual counties because of a failure to, to target, you know, individual kind of factories. Um, and, and I think Richard is right to say that this is a, a, a pandemic that has not only hit the, el the elderly hardest, it has certainly helped, helped or hit some of the, the poorest people in this country hardest, those in temporary accommodation, um, direct provision, etc. like that, the homeless um, and, and travellers who, again, have fallen through the cracks, essentially. You know, and so now, if anybody's going to get a bounce from this, do you think it's ultimately going to be those left parties? No, I don't. I genuinely think that it's very difficult to see who will get a benefit from this because, I mean, you, if you look, as I made the point at the start, since I've been writing on politics, I've yet to see a government, any government get a bounce from a giveaway budget, like the old adage, as you would have seen. I've, I'm not convinced that Fianna Fáil after f or Fianna Gael after five months after messing things up in, in December are going to get thanked by the public for belatedly opening up the country. And we see that, I suppose, I just want to ask you about um, the Stephen Donnelly story in the front of the Irish Times this morning. And we understand that, you know, he assessed his Twitter account and the Department of Health's Twitter account and wasn't happy with a number of tweets or mentions that included Stephen Donnelly. What does that tell you about sort of the Fianna Fáil mindset or the government mindset, or is it just his own mindset? Listen, it's far be it to me to criticise any individual politician for being a diva or being certainly wrapped up in their own self-importance. But I mean, what is a minister doing checking his own tweets when he has to deal with hundreds of deaths per week in, in nursing homes? It was like the timing of this was very important. It was in the middle of January when the deaths and the, the, the I suppose the third wave was at its peak. And he's worried about the number of mentions he's getting on a social media platform. To me, it is outrageous that he was even wasting time of his officials that this was going on. Now, you, now I didn't... But in fairness, you would accept that those who are successful at the moment in politics have a very strong social media presence. And he's entitled to ensure that his presence is as strong as anybody else's and that he is perhaps getting, you know, some of the compliments that are out there or some of the congratulations that are out there for some of the good things that Department of Health has done in recent months to deal with COVID-19. Listen, managing your message is a key part of politics. I get that. I'm not going to say... I'll be naive to say that it isn't. And Richard even yeah, and others will say that you have to manage your message and marshal your message very clearly. But look, the t again, go back to the timing of this and look who was involved. His Secretary General, Robert Watt, who is now, as we believe, is going to be appointed on a salary of €292,000 tomorrow, um, 
was basically involved in instructing the head of communications in that department to make sure the minister was mentioned more on Twitter. That is not how resources should have been used at a, such a critical period of time. I like I didn't buy his excuse on radio this morning that he hadn't read the story or wasn't aware of the story. He was going on a major national radio station on a, about a front page story in one of the major newspapers. He would have been contacted but about this. in fairness, he's not the only one because the Irish Independent had a story this morning that over a half a million, I think it was 600 plus thousand had been spent by a number of TDs on things like PR and consultancy and their image. So he's not alone, is he, Richard? Uh, well, I, I think there's a very, very unhealthy obsession in the government parties and in some of the opposition parties in uh, PR and consultancy uh, rather than the substance. And that infuriates people. Of course, you have to have a communication strategy to get your, your, your message across, your arguments across. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But when, you know, the health service is in crisis, mm. uh, when it's massively under-resourced, when you're paying out fortunes to private hospitals uh, to make money out of the COVID crisis, and then you're worried about PR, that really grates so with very people. quickly, what kind of PR were you trying to achieve by saying that you weren't going to send your condolences for the death of um, Prince Philip? Because we're socialists and we don't believe in monarchs and royalty in the 21st century. Uh, we don't believe that uh, the idea of inherited power and wealth by virtue of your birth is a particularly progressive thing that we should uh, over-focus on. We, you know, we'd like... Not very neighbourly though, Richard, is it? Uh, well, I, I, I'm not sure what neighbourliness comes into it. There's a lot of people in Britain are complaining in the last few right. days about the excessive coverage of the royal... Uh, and yet two-thirds of them support the monarchy at the same time. Yeah, but I don't support monarchy. Okay. And uh, I actually think it's an anachronism uh, and it's sort of a symbol of inequality, which we okay. need to... We're going to have we to... We need to challenge. Leave it there. My thanks to Daniel McConnell and to Richard Boyd-Barrett. And after the break, Vicky Phelan reflects on her treatment in the United States, receiving her COVID vaccine and being far from her children at home. very welcome back. We're now joined on Skype all the way from Washington in the United States by campaigner and author Vicky Phelan. Vicky, it's really lovely to speak to you as always. How are you? How are you keeping? How's the treatment going? Hi, Kira. Uh, yeah, I'm good. I've been good for the last few days. Thank God I had treatment last week and the vaccine um, uh, one day after each other. So I didn't know how that would go. Um, I was a bit nervous, obviously, uh, because usually after treatment, I usually have a few rough days of vomiting and that. But um, I, I was actually pretty good for most of the week. I had one bad day on Friday. Uh, I woke with a splitting headache and I knew I was in for a day of vomiting. But it didn't actually last for the whole day, which was great. Um, but I just go back to bed and sleep it off, you know. So, I mean, I can do that over here when I don't have children to look after. So... That's the beauty, I suppose, of being on my own. And what is the treatment plan, Vicky, at this point? I mean, how long are you looking at staying in the United States? Um, well, I lied <laughs> to everybody when I, told <laughs> when I told them about how long I was coming for. I told everybody it was six months, but it was actually a year. Uh, but I, I just thought, you know what? I couldn't tell my family and my friends that I was leaving for 12 months. Uh, it was hard enough saying goodbye, knowing that, you know, they thought I was coming for six. Um, so, you know, realistically, it's 12 months. I have a schedule right up to the end of January next year. Um, but 
at the same time, my oncologist is a lovely man. He's young enough. He's got young kids himself and he knows I'm over here on my own. And uh, he's promised me that if we get to a point where I'm, you know, on a full dose, because at the moment I'm still only on half the dose um, and I'm tolerating it well. So, you know, I still have to get to a stage where I'm not vomiting or having some reaction. Um, and obviously the t- tumours are shrinking that he would look at extending the kind of the spaces in between my treatment schedule. He has a number of patients who are very stable, who only come in for treatments then every three months. So that would be great. It would mean I would be able to go home and just come back every three months. But I, I'd say I'm another probably another six months off of that yet, to be quite honest. Um, at the moment, I suppose it would be very difficult for you to come home or indeed for the children to go over and visit you because of, you know, the quarantine restrictions. Yeah, so there's uh, it's getting more difficult every week with new restrictions coming in. I mean, there were new restrictions added here on the 6th of March. Biden brought in new restrictions on people coming into the USA. So it's only uh, people who are allowed to come in for essential services. Now, there are some exceptions, and one of them is humanitarian grounds. So I'm really hoping that I could get uh, Jim and the kids over on humanitarian grounds. But I'm not really... 100% that that will happen, to be quite honest. And I'm almost terrified about applying because I think if I'm told that they can't come over, I think that'll floor me, really, you know. So it's a kind of a, a vicious circle. But then I was thinking, well, I could go home and maybe, you know, maybe we could space out one of my cycles and I could go home for a month, maybe. But then, you know, now they've brought in a mandatory quarantine at home for two weeks. So, I mean, that really wouldn't be an option for me. So I don't know. It's really difficult to know at this stage, you know, Because as you mentioned, um, Vicky, I know you've made loads of friends, um, which doesn't surprise me at all, uh, particularly among the Irish community over there. But essentially you are there by yourself. You're there without, you know, immediate family. How has that been? It's been fine most of the time. I mean, there's times where it's been quite hairy, where I have been very ill, and that's hard when you're on your own and you don't have anybody you can kind of pick up the phone to and say, you know, can you come over? I'm feeling that crap. Um, now I do have somebody like that now, thank God, Geraldine. Um, and I'm living in Old Town now. I've moved. I was in Bethesda, which is quite near to the hospital, for, for the last you know two and a half months. And I just moved last week into Old Town, which is about a half an hour away from, from the hospital. But it's nearer, you know, a couple of Irish people who live here, um, which for me, I think is better. It's better to be near some Irish people if I do have a day where I'm going to be feeling, you know, bad. At least I know they could, you know, bundle me up into a car and bring me back down to the hospital if, if things got hairy. But look, you know, so far I've been fine. Um, but the time I suppose I find difficult is nighttime, Kira. So at the moment, you know, it's getting late at home, obviously, and, you know, everybody will be in bed in the next hour and so it's six o'clock in the evening over here. So it's the night times I find difficult when, you know, nine or ten o'clock at night you want to have a chat with somebody. I can't because it's three o'clock in the morning at home, you know. So they're the times I find kind of lonely, I suppose. Yeah, and of course, I know how close you are to your two kids, to Amelia and Dara, and I'm sure uh, every parent can relate to this. You know, the longer you're away from them, the harder it gets. Yeah, um, definitely. And I think, you know, my teenager, Amelia, is 15. She's fine. I mean, teenagers are so used to dealing with each other and uh, communicating over the phone. She's actually fine. I'm not too worried about her. Um, But Dara is only 10. And, you know, I've had a couple of weeks there in the last two or three weeks, really, where there's been days where he just won't talk to me. 
on the phone and you know I have to be the better bigger person and it's hard uh, I'm the parent so I have to suck it up and just kind of accept that you know he doesn't want to talk to me because he misses me but he's angry and he doesn't know how to you know articulate that so I just have to accept that he doesn't want to talk to me but that is hard when there's days like that um and then this week with them back to school the two of them were like demons last night going to bed so <laughs> and you just want to be respects, there in some respects I'm glad I'm over no I'm glad I'm over here I can tell you <laughs> uh, your honesty about par uh, parenting is refreshing Vicky and um, you mentioned you might get the kids over on humanitarian grounds um, but you'd have to obviously apply for that you are in Washington you're quite close to Joe Biden there in the White House are you hoping for a visit well, I'd love that to happen, obviously, with the Irish connections, I'd hope, you know, now that I'm vaccinated, Kira, you know, it might happen at some stage. I mean, I thought maybe at, uh, for Paddy's Day there might be something on, but sure, of course, there was no celebrations of that over here, really, which is terrible because it's a bigger day over here generally than it is at home. Uh, but look, I suppose as more and more people get vaccinated, things might relax a bit and they might have a little bit more um, functions, I suppose. And I'd be hoping that, uh, you know, definitely before I leave here, I'd love to meet him. So please God, something might happen. I'm always, uh, you know, put, put it out to the universe, these things will happen. If Joe Biden, if you're listening, Vicky Phelan's in town. Uh, Vicky, thanks so much. Uh, lovely to speak to you and you take care. Thanks very much, Kira. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's it for tonight. My thank you to Vicky and to all of my guests. I'll be back with you here on the Tonight Show at 10pm tomorrow. Until then, good night. Stay safe. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.